This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, the Pac 12 Conference remains the conference in college football. Great weekend for the conference. Oregon winning on the road, Utah winning on the road, hostile environment. We'll talk college football, but before we do, we have to talk about the undefeated. Oregon State Beavers and the undefeated Washington State Cougars. They scored a victory today in court, in Whitman County Court. Judge ruling today to give Oregon State and Washington State the temporary restraining order that they sought in the court filing on Friday. Got a big win, more ahead but really liked what Oregon State and Washington State did. Man, anybody else out there disappointed with the act of the 10 departing schools? Like, on one hand, hey, I don't blame you. Go take the money. Go chase the money. Do what's in your best interest. But it came out in court today that the 10 departing members were planning to discuss on Wednesday how the Pac-12 conference, including Oregon State and Washington State, was going to pay some of their transition costs. Oh, that's right. They wanted their cake, and they want to eat it too. Anybody else watch and tune in to this proceeding, this court proceeding? I think it was really interesting. I know I was on the edge of my seat. Uh, the judge is Gary Leiby. He is a long-term attorney in Colfax, Washington. So he's been working in and around the Whitman County Superior Courthouse for the better part of 40 to 45 years. And he started the complaint proceedings today by making reference to the funnel cake that he and his wife served and ate at the fairgrounds over the weekend. Very folksy approach. But he ended it by granting Oregon State and Washington State their temporary restraining order. It was a victory for Oregon State and Washington State. There's much more ahead. Jayati Murthy, the president at Oregon State, I spoke with her in a one-on-one interview over the weekend I wrote about it at johnconzano.com, but, you know, they made a very reasonable case today. Their attorney, Eric McMichael, uh, presented today. By the way, he's a Cal grad. What a weird what a weird dynamic. First of all, you have two schools suing the other ten. You have ten schools that have left the two behind. You've got a commissioner in George Klyovkov who was a no-show at the proceedings today and became the subject of a, a joke by the judge. Mark Lambert, the attorney that was presenting on behalf of the 10 defendants, basically said that uh, George Klyovkov is in a really bad position. He said he was, quote, in a terrible position. 
caught between board members with conflicting agendas. The judge interrupted him and said, no, I think Klyovkov's in Montana. Uh, literally, his literal place, uh, he's got a, uh, a vacation home in Montana. Uh, the temporary restraining order, you know, and again, this is a sports radio show, so I'm going to do this. The temporary restraining order is designed to stop harm and and basically uh, create a situation where the board can't meet. And that's what Washington State and Oregon State wanted. They wanted the the fact that the Pac-12 was going to try to hold a board meeting and potentially change the bylaws of the conference. They wanted to put a halt to that. And they got the restraining order. Now th- this will go to a preliminary injunction hearing after everybody's had the time and opportunity to prepare witnesses and evidence there will be discovery. Oh, yeah. They're going to ask for emails. They're going to ask for documents. They're going to ask for text messages. It'll be interesting to see the discovery process and what comes out. Now, the judge, Judge Leiby, uh, has not set a date for the next hearing, but he did mention expedited discovery, which means that the standard time frames for document exchanges will be shortened. Sometimes it takes a month, sometimes two months to get that done. But the judges asked the parties to agree on shortened time frames and a much shorter deadline to complete the discovery. Now, it has come out that the judge, Judge Leiby, who, by the way, really folksy. Like, he starts the hearing, he talks about the fairgrounds and the funnel cake. And, you know, obviously, Washington State and Oregon State chose this courthouse in this county as the venue because they knew that they might get a favorable uh, audience with the judges, uh, Whitman County, sitting uh, right there where Washington State is, right outside of Pullman and Colfax, Whitman County, um, you know, has got a lot of Washington State fans and a lot of people who are familiar with what's going on. And this judge in particular, Judge Leiby, happens to be the former president of the Cougar Club. And he's, you know, he's still a judge. And I thought, in as I was watching it, maybe he would try to just be like, you know, uh, ultra pre- present himself as, hey, you know, I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm going to play this down the middle. I'm, I'm going to be ultra fair here. And I do think he was fair. I don't think that he could do anything today but rule in favor of Oregon State and Washington State based on the arguments that I heard. But he kept bringing up the idea that it's 10 against 2. He said 10 against 2. How does that turn out? I just thought it was really interesting to hear some of the attorneys talk about, you know, uh, you know the, the conference as it stands and, and uh, Washington State and Oregon State's attorney, Eric McMichael, really, uh, you're going to hear him here. He's talking about the, the two teams that want to save the conference. This is what he had to say in court today. All we're saying is that under the bylaws, we are the only members who are entitled to vote on the board. And we want the opportunity to see if there's a chance to save this conference. And we don't want both of our arms tied behind our backs by having every decision made by 10 members who no longer have any interest in seeing the conference survive and instead have a strong financial interest in seeing the conference dissolve. He went into the bylaws in great length. And by the way, I found it interesting that the defense kind of glossed over the bylaws and just kind of made it about, you know, hey, we need to hold this meeting on Wednesday because there's some operations. From an operations standpoint, there's some things that need to be decided. They didn't really spend a lot of time trying to get into did the 10 members uh, violate the bylaws by announcing that they were leaving early? Do they vacate their board seats? He didn't get into that argument because I don't think he could have won that argument. Um, Eric uh, McMichael, the plaintiff attorney, basically 
um, pointing out that, uh, you know, once you make an announcement that you're going to leave the conference, you give up your board seat. That's in the bylaws. And UCLA and USC were held to that standard in July, uh, excuse me, July 1 of 2020, when they, uh, 2022, when they, dis- they announced they were going to the Big Ten Conference, they effectively were removed from the board position, and everybody went forward as a group of 10. We all know that. And then when Colorado, this last July, announced that they were going to the Big 12, Colorado lost its seat, and Colorado uh, was informed of that in, in, in writing. And then when the other, you know, eight schools that, that uh, include Colorado left, including Oregon and Washington, including Utah, Arizona State, and Arizona, then they, they suddenly wanted to uh, not only retain their board seats, but they wanted the Pac-12 conference to pay some of their transition costs to their new homes. I thought, I think that's kind of, I mean, look, to me, like, I get it, it's about money, but it's petty enough that Oregon State and Washington State have been left behind. And I've sat here and I've defended Oregon and I've defended Washington and I've defended the the rights of the schools to do what's best for them. I think they they always you know should have been thinking in those terms. I don't blame the Ducks. I don't blame the Huskies like some others do. But I do think if you are sitting there after you've left, try after you've announced you're leaving, held a news conference, told the world that you're going to the Big Ten, you can't come back and go wait a minute, we should still have a board seat. And not only that, you can't come back and say, the Pac-12 should pay some of the transition costs. That's that's not what happens. Here's uh, the attorney for Oregon State and Washington State. One of the things that they're proposing to vote on on Wednesday is a, a services plan that would have the Pac-12 pay some of the money for the transition costs for these t- uh, 10 members to transition to new conferences. So they're proposing that the Pac-12 pay some of the costs for them to leave and join these rival conferences. Why in the world the Pac-12 would have any motivation to pay the transition costs for these members to leave and join competitors? I I surely don't know. But that's one of the issues, for example, that they want to vote vote on on Wednesday. And again, it just illustrates the conflict that we have now on this board. And part of the issue in trying to get a restraining order is that you have to show that there's a uh, imminent threat or an imminent reason why the restraining order is valid. And you know, and McMichael does a nice job there, sort of showing the judge and telling everybody that you know, if you don't stop this meeting on Wednesday, there, this is one of the things that's going to happen. He also went into the idea that they are proposing to change the bylaws. Uh, which um, you know should have put everybody on high alert. Uh, a win for the Beavers, a win for the Cougs. They're undefeated on the field. They're undefeated in the courtroom. Uh, there will be further litigation on this front. It looks to me, you know, and again, I'm not an attorney, but it looks to me like Oregon State and Washington State are probably going to win this if it goes to trial. They're going to be uh, deemed as the only sole board members. But here's the dirty little secret. That discovery piece sort of points me in the direction of believing that it won't ever get to trial. I think we're looking at several weeks of negotiations. I think there will be a settlement. I think Oregon State and Washington State have all the leverage that they need to get that settlement at this point. I think it looks like they'll be victorious in court. And further, I don't think that the 10 departing schools are going to want to endure discovery. I don't think they're going to want the emails between each other, the text messages between each other, 
the messages, the you know, the letters that have written between each other, the messages that they have exchanged with TV network executives, all of that falling under the uh, umbrella of discovery. I don't think they're going to want that stuff out there. And so because of that, I do think we're going to get a settlement in this case. we got a lot of football to talk about, and I want to pivot in that direction. But if you want to talk about the courtroom antics, if you want to talk about the folksy judge, if you want to talk about the outcome that Oregon State and Washington State got today, Jothy Murthy, the president of Oregon State, declaring it a good day and essentially saying that uh, she's pleased with it. She said, quote, as the two remaining Pac-12 members, Oregon State and Washington State must be able to chart a path forward for the Pac-12, not the members that have chosen to leave it, end quote. If you want to talk about that, I'll do it. 503-417-7575. You can weigh in. What should Oregon do? What should Washington do? Utah, Arizona State, Arizona. Nobody's talking about them giving up their revenues that they're due this year for media rights or postseason distributions. But if I'm them, you've got blood on your hands to the extent where you're looking over at your in-state rivals. You've already caused them at minimally an in- a massive inconvenience and revenue. And embarrassment. Um, why push the envelope on this issue? Why push the envelope and try to get a piece of the Pac-12 networks? Why push the envelope? You know, you've got your money waiting for you in the Big Ten conference. If you'd like to do it, I think uh, Washington State and Oregon State are going to end up winning in the end. But why? Uh, what would you do if you were Oregon? If you were Washington in this case, do you lawyer up and go to court and fight this? Do you settle this, make it go away so you can move forward? I'm really interested in sort of your view of things at 503-417-7575. I love that because we are looking at the end of the lawyer part of the show and now the beginning of the football part of the show. Stephen, over the weekend, I know you were watching Colorado. I was watching Colorado. I know you were watching Utah and Baylor. I watched that game. Uh, and I know you were tuned into the Oregon game because we were texting throughout that game. And then Oregon State put it on UC Davis, open research stadium. It's a really good weekend. Washington State beating Wisconsin. It's a great weekend for the Pac-12 on the field. And that's the thing about this whole legal stuff is, like, the Pac-12 is awesome this year. On the field, they are awesome. It was the best conference in America, and they, they went out and proved that. I mean, even Arizona goes to uh, Mississippi State. Tough call to not get a, on a fourth, a fourth down. Uh, Delore runs. Almost gets the first down. They barely lose. Cal barely loses to Auburn. Like you're right. Like the the, the Pac-12 had a great showing on the field as well. Washington State looked great. Oregon State looked great as usual. But yeah, that Oregon Texas Tech game, John. You know, I was texting you. I had Oregon minus the five as that number kept getting lower and lower. So uh, that pick six, man. I want to thank you for it. First of all, we were texting. <laughs> we were texting. I said, man, they're not gonna get the cover. You said pick six here coming by Shuck. Sure, behold, pick six for Oregon, but. Next play. Next play, but you want, <laughs> I, I, I want to say this about the about the Ducks defense, John. They made some mistakes for sure, yes. But what I was impressed by is they made the plays when they had to, and it was the depth, it was the pass rush. It's the stuff that we've been questioning all offseason that came through and won the game for the Ducks and Dan Lanning. So for that reason, to go on the road and to win that game, it, it was very impressive to me. And I, I like Oregon's situation right now. You know, Going into uh, next week 3-0, and I think they're looking good right now. Oregon, the game bothered me a little bit because, I, and maybe it's because I have such high expectations for Oregon, but it bothered me from the standpoint of I felt like in the middle part of the game, second and third quarter in particular, the Oregon offense sort of tuned, turned into what can Bo Nix do with his feet? 
And that's not where I want to live if I'm Will Stein in the Oregon offense. And granted, you know, Texas Tech, tough environment, pretty good team, playing at home. I get it. It's tough to win on the road. I think we all sort of saw that play out on college football Saturday. But early on, love that they were trying to get down the field and, and hit Troy Franklin with a couple of big strikes, connected on one of them. Love that you know they could throw the ball a little bit. Don't think they did a very good job consistently running the ball with their backs and felt like they leaned too much on there's nothing there. Bo, just tuck it and run. And it's cool that you can do that um, – you know, uh, it's cool that you can do that. You know, to to uh, to make a first down or a big play in a situation. Like you don't want to take that away from Bo Nix, but I don't want Oregon's offense to be Bo Nix running around out there risking his uh, season. But how much value does it come with the fact that Oregon didn't play well? I, I didn't think they played necessarily yeah. well, and they still pulled off a win over a solid Texas Tech team who's going to probably be a bowl team on the road at night. Like, I, I give them a lot of credit. Like, it's a not, it wasn't a tough or it wasn't an easy game to go into, and then you don't play well on top of it and you still get the win. I thought they showed a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of balls that they could really get through that and a lot of composure. Uh, under Dan Lanning. Lanning's talking about toughness all offseason. I thought there was they showed a lot of toughness, even though they did not play well. To get that win, I thought it was really important. I I think from a standpoint of, I love when a team shows resilience. I love when a team shows some metal. I like that. Like Dan Lanning even alluded to that. They talk about a game that uh, took all 60 minutes. It took every second. You know, I think that game could look a lot different if we didn't shoot ourselves in the foot so much. A lot of penalties on defense and offense uh, alike. It could be better on uh, third down in some situations. I thought their quarterback played with incredible toughness. He um, was able to run the ball on us. Right? We, that's, there's some issues walking in. Our team's excited to go fix issues. Right? Some stuff that happened. But that being said, really tough environment to go play in. Right? A lot of teams would have lost their cool when things weren't going well, and our guys kept their uh, composure throughout the game. They were calm and composed. They had a plan for adversity, and they went out there and executed when it mattered down the, down the stretch. Look, I love the adversity part. They overcame. I didn't love that defensively they looked a lot like last year's team at times, and offensively they got one-dimensional. And I I just didn't love that about them. But, again, it almost felt to me, tell me if you got this impression, it felt like Oregon's first game of the season. Granted that they had the 81-7 to win over Portland State in Week 1, I kind of looked at it and I was like, gosh, they look like a team playing their first game. Too many penalties, 14 penalties, too many yards, bad penalties that came outside of you know competition, and just uh, you know looked a little shaky on both sides of the ball. Yeah, no doubt. You know, getting blocked on that punt—that's something that happens in the first week of the season. Even that final drive before the pick six. Uh, you know, they missed a tackle. Uh, Jackson missed the tackle right on the outside and got Texas Tech to about the 45. Like, I thought, man, they're, they're going to drive and get a field goal attempt, but, you know, it ended up next play they got in, got the rush on. But, you know, it's, this is something, John, that I – the thing about it is is I'm putting a lot more stock into this, be the adversity part, because last season we saw when things got tough against Washington – they didn't come through. When things got tough against Oregon State, they couldn't stop the run. They knew Oregon State was going to run the football. They couldn't stop it. At least on Saturday, stuff went against them. They didn't play well, but they got through it, and they got the win on the road. So for that reason, like I'm, I'm going to choose to look at this game very positively. Even though I don't think they played well, the fact that they actually rose through and things are going their way, unlike last season when they lost these games, they get one to start the season. I think this could go very far uh, for this season.
Yeah, I think Oregon to me looks good, but so does so does USC, so does Oregon State, so does Washington, so does Washington State. I so think do, it's going to so be Colorado. Yeah, They'll be Colorado their first conference looks game. good. Like I think there's going to be tests every week, and I and I you know everybody's talking about how great the conference is. I am too, but I also think like yeah, it's a gauntlet at that too. Let's go to the phone lines. Roy's in Portland. He's going to lead us off. Roy, go ahead. Hey, John. Um, that makes me think that um, Portland State is not a good team. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean uh, that, that game right there. I, I thought Oregon was going to lose that game. So kudos to Oregon because they can They, you know, that's a tough environment to play, and that really was like your first game of the season because that Portland game was a waste of time. That is not a good football team, Portland, and um, you don't do you don't get better by playing a team like that. You know, early in the season, I'm glad they got tested now. You know, um, I, I don't see anything there because uh, people talking about Colorado. I don't see Colorado giving the Oregon a problem. Uh, I just don't. I don't. You know, if Nebraska didn't turn the ball over ten times, they would have won that game. You know, um, they were sacking that quarterback uh, for Colorado at will. So uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy Colorado. But but John, I, I just I was thinking. How is San Diego State and the rest of the Mountain West team surviving off the money that they're making? Because I keep mm-hmm. hearing about, oh, Washington State can't survive off the money that the Mountain West is paying. Well, how are the other teams in the Mountain West surviving? Because mm-hmm. it costs a whole lot more money to live in San Diego than it does to in Pullman or <laughs> uh, Oregon. So I don't know how. So since the money is so small, please can somebody explain to me how San Diego State, as expensive as it is to live in San Diego, High is enough money for them, but it's not enough money for Washington State and Oregon State. I just think Washington State and Oregon State got used to living the good life, the millions of dollars, and unfortunately, that's going to come to an end. You're going to have to budget your money like San Diego State. and you. I mean, how is UNLV? It costs when they live in Las Vegas. How are they making it? And Oregon State and Corvallis and Washington State and Pullman can't possibly survive off the money from the Mountain West, but San Diego State can so yeah. something to me is not something to well, me is not lining up. I, yeah. I, I really well, don't. I, part of it, part of it is you're, you're talking cost of living, which is which is accurate. Like it costs money to live in those places. But really, what we're talking about is if you want to fund yourself like a Power Five football program, or you want to fund the rest of your athletic department like a Power Five program. Yes, you need that twenty-five to thirty million dollars in media rights revenue. Minimally, and where you really see the differences between the programs when you look at the football budgets, yes, it's less at San Diego State, yes, it's less at UNLV, and you start to just see, like, you know, it's why Kirk Schultz, the president of Washington State, when he came on this show, he said it wasn't that, you know, the the players were saying we need to be a Power Five conference program. They were saying we need to be funded like a Power Five conference program. The amenities that you have, the locker room that you have, the recruiting budget that you have, the fact that you have, you're going to pay your head coaches far more than they're paying the head coaches at the Mountain West Conference schools, you know, your assistant coaches. You start to look at the overall budgets and you start to see real differences between those programs. It, you know, The coaches still live in nice houses in San Diego and other places. They still get paid well. But relative to the normal person living in San Diego or you or Las Vegas in UNLV's case, but you start talking about losing those coaches, Kalen DeBoer. What does he do? He leaves the Mountain West Conference for Washington because it's a significant pay raise. So there's those are the differences. And oh, by the way, 
they might not have to fund themselves at a lower level if they can get control of the conference because they can get all the assets. Keep an eye on that as well. I think it's going to be interesting to see that play out. Yes, I think I think Oregon's good enough, by the way, to get to Las Vegas and play for the conference championship. I think they are. I also think they're shaky enough in spots where they could lose a couple games. I think it's going to be that kind of season for a lot of these teams. We'll continue to talk about it. I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575. Weigh in. Brenda Tracy in the news. Mel Tucker, the coach at Michigan State. He has been suspended without pay pending uh, the outcome of an investigation stemming from uh, alleged harassment and inappropriate uh, interactions that he had with Brenda Tracy who uh, you are familiar with. We'll be talking with Kenny Jacoby, the USA Today reporter who wrote all about it over the weekend. Kenny will be joining us at 4 o'clock to discuss it. I want to go to the phone lines. What did you make of the weekend? Colorado. Are they for real? Do you believe yet in Colorado or not quite? Let's go to Mark in Portland. Mark, uh, you want to talk about the Ducks. What's up? Well, I just want to say that... uh, uh, I had everything keyed to the Ducks covering after listening to you guys, and I don't think I've ever hit a luckier <laughs> situation at the end. When he when he picked that football, I started. I mean, the whole neighborhood heard me screaming. I just went nuts because you're the the next thing I'm thinking if some of these guys play football real intelligently, he drops to a knee to just run the clock out when they gave the ball back. Texas Tech could have got a touchdown, a two point conversion to tie. So I. You weren't sure he was going to go in the end zone until he finished the run, and that's just a miracle cover because I had that key to a lot of other things. You, you money line. I I took the money line games with Oregon, and then I bet them all three together with uh, Auburn and Cal and Washington State mm. Wisconsin. And Cal Cal should have won that game. Yeah, they really should have. They they just kept missing field goals, and they you know they didn't they didn't score any points when they when they were down close. So it was it was tough to watch that at the end, but. Uh, I think the Mountain West Conference, if you look at – you go back 15 years, John, they they started uh, – let the rich were getting richer, and that's what college football is all about. The richer teams get richer. Well, we used to have teams like Boise State 2009, Utah 2008, TCU in the Mountain West Conference 2010. They won their BCS games. All those teams in a playoff could have could have won it all. The 2009 Boise State team shut Chip Kelly's – Oregon offense down better than any team I've ever seen, including LSU. They completely stuffed us. That's the game where LeGarrette Blount went psycho. They completely, uh, you know, so we don't see that anymore because it's impossible for for Mountain West Conference teams now to compete with the Big Ten and the SEC because they're getting bigger portions of the money. You guys would know more about that. I don't because I don't, I don't, I don't even want to follow it because the rich are getting richer in every aspect of life. It feels like so. Yeah. It's frustrating to watch. I mean, whenever it's 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 not fair to Oregon State and Washington State, and it's it's not fair to Boise State and a lot of these other schools. They they are not on an even uh, stage with with you know Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, and pretty soon Oregon and Washington. It's 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 an unfair situation. Yeah, I uh, you know I'm going to give people an example of what I'm talking about with the comparison to like the University of Oregon and. San Diego State as you kind of compare those two schools um, you know University of Oregon has more athletes uh, on their campus especially on the men's side almost a hundred more men's ath- male athletes inside the uh, inside the program participating in sports partially because 
um, they can have more sports. They have a bigger budget. Um, the recruiting expenses, let's just look at football. Operating expenses for the football program uh, at Oregon. If you just look at kind of go, okay, let's take a look at the men's teams. Let's look at expenses. Oregon, uh, you know, from an operating standpoint, uh, you know, is, is looking at a budget of uh, about $11 million that it will spend on football in the next year. And San Diego State will spend about $9 million. But I'll give you a better, better example by just kind of looking at school by school the expenses that you have. Here you go. Here, that's the, that's the revenue. Excuse me, not expenses. That's the revenue created. Here are the expenses for Oregon's football program versus the expenses for San Diego State. The expenses for Oregon's football program, $40 million, okay, $40 million. That's what it costs for Dan Lanning's program from recruiting, everything, travel, operating expenses, $40 million. San Diego State, $18 million. So they're spending about half when it comes to expenses. I was looking at revenue generating, uh, revenue generated by the ticket gate. So, you know, you're looking at like twice the amount of money spent in football now go compete. Like San Diego State will go play at Oregon State this weekend. I can guarantee you it's not going to be 2 to 1 with Oregon State, but it'll be close. It'll be like, you know, 1.7 to 1 in Oregon State's case. So, it's just there's more money available in media rights, therefore they spend more money. Uh doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to make more money because they just kind of invest that and they justify it as an investment. The Mike in Portland calling in. Mike, what do you want to talk about? What's on your mind? First of all, John, I want to tell uh, Roy, man, he reminded me of Fredo on The Godfather. You know, Fredo's biggest problem on The Godfather was he wanted respect and he thought he was smart. It ended up costing him his life. You remember that scene. But anyway, man, let me tell you about Colorado, the reason that they're going to beat the Ducks when they come to Oregon. Colorado has not even played all of their star players. Mm-hmm. They got a guy named McCaskill who in his uh, – I think uh, freshman year he ran. They're saving him. They're saving him. They're saving a lot of people. And you guys don't understand that they got these Hall of Famers like T.O. He's he's coaching the wide receivers. They got uh, Warren Sapp. He's coaching the defense. They got these Hall of Famers in there coaching all these people. They're going to beat the Ducks. And another thing about Colorado that you guys don't understand these guys walking around with D on their on their jerseys, and it's a dog. They got stripes, man. They got to earn their stripes. The Ducks, man, the Ducks ain't played nobody. And when Colorado come into town, they're going to roll over them. The, the big matchup is going to be Colorado and USC. When them two teams meet up, they're going to be both undefeated. This is where it's going, folks. So you guys, listen to me. You're going to win some money, and you're going to be on the air looking smart. I'm smart. I've been telling you guys what's going to happen, and everything I've said has turned out right. Okay, all right. On that note, on that note, if Colorado comes to Eugene in week four and gets boat raced, are you calling in on Monday going, you know what, they weren't ready for the stage. The play was, uh, the stage was too big. John, that's what they said about TCU. TCU is a much better team than uh, uh, the Ducks, 
TCU. Nah, I don't think so. Look, I don't think so. I don't think so. We'll f- John, John. I don't think so. Yeah. John. Are you going to call in on Monday, though, if they lose? Will you call in? I'll win call, or lose? You yeah. should call in. Win or lose. If you call in Monday, you might be gloating. You know, make an appointment. That Monday after the game, you need to call in. I'm calling in, John. All right. Done Talk deal. Later. All right, done deal. Hey, hey look, I, I'll, give, I'll give credit. There was no way in my mind Colorado was going to be 2-0 and heading to week three of the season. And I watched the Nebraska game. I picked Colorado to win that one. But I think if Nebraska had a better quarterback, it would have been problematic. But, you know, Colorado was the better team. You know, so much of the game is the quarterback position. Shadur Sanders, although he wasn't great like he was in week one, he was better than what Nebraska ran out there. Do you give any credit to the Colorado defense, or is it more of Nebraska offense? Uh, I, I couldn't tell. The quarterback for Nebraska was so bad, I kept wondering if they'd get in the portal at halftime. You know, find somebody. Ben Gulbrinson, get him out there. Like they, Tristan you know, Jebbia, just get him out there. Could, couldn't catch the snap. Like, you know, had situations where they were effectively running the ball. They were controlling the line of scrimmage, you know, and I thought this is where Nebraska, if they just had a quarterback that could play a little bit, would have taken over. So, But I think Colorado's defense is a little bit underrated, too. You know, I want to see them against Oregon. I want to see them against USC. And that's coming, weeks four and weeks five. The thing about the defense is that they may not be great to give up a lot of yards, but they cause turnovers, and that's what's important in college football. You go back to week one against TCU. They had the two interceptions in the red zone. On Saturday, they had three uh, three turnovers forced against Nebraska. I, I think that can kind of help you out a little bit. If the defense isn't great normally, cause some turnovers. That's going to help you keep in the game. They're going to be 3-0 and heading to Eugene. The Ducks are going to be 3-0. and that's going to be a big one, and you know, and 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 look, the Pac-12 has to love that. They're going to have the spotlight. Let's go to Matt in Portland. Matt, welcome to the show. What's up, man? Hey, John. Just wanted to talk some ducks and just kind of the outlook. Um, I'll go based off of the conversation you're having about Colorado. I think that's going to be a much bigger game than I even anticipated it was going to be. Um, I think that they're a lot better team than anybody anticipated, and I gotta I gotta tip my hat to Deion Sanders for getting that team ready and uh, and beating TCU. That was the more impressive win than Nebraska. Nebraska is kind of a they've been down in the last several years, um, and just we're not a good team. But uh, I wanted to talk about uh, the Portland State game and the Texas Tech game. I just I, I didn't like a couple things that I did see, and I think some room to improve and I'm kind of glad they're playing Hawaii coming up here to tune some things up but um, they left some wide open holes that opening drive for Portland State to run right through and that was something that I'm like if your offensive line your starting offensive line is going to get pushed around by Portland State then you might need to shore some things up Um, and the same thing you know I mean in in Texas Tech I did not like the fact that they were having Bo Nix run all over the field um, I, I like him being a pocket passer who can run is kind of yeah. why I like Bo Nix. Yep. I think Oregon is poised to win a lot of games this year. I think that they could end up in Vegas, but I think I, I'm going to agree with you that they could also end up, you know, being nine and three or eight, maybe even eight and four because of how good the Pac-12 is this year. And I'm a huge Oregon Ducks fan, and that's hard for me to say. But I yep. think that they have a lot of skilled position players. I like the improvement. I, I like the game clock management from Dan Lanning um, a little bit. I didn't watch the whole Oregon game. I've got it on record, and I watched almost two-thirds of it last night because 
you know, family stuff, but um, like I liked from what I was just seeing, just based on the you know the quick game cast that I had, the clock management. He ground that clock down, kicked a field goal, and um, I was like, I was like that, that to me showed a little bit of improvement. Um, and yeah. then they got the pick six to seal the deal. Yeah, I, look, I think you give him credit, and you say, you know, I was in the press box, and Phil Knight was there, and on the way out, he kind of said, "Not pretty." Uh, you give him credit, though, and you say they were resilient. They found a way. Because I like that. That's part of football. You have to be able to overcome some adversity. And they did. But also, I don't blame you if you're a Duck fan and you were watching parts of that game and you got a little PTSD thinking about Mario Cristobal. It just felt like offensively, they were not dynamic. They The Kenny Dillingham Oregon offense was a lot more creative. I was disappointed that Oregon didn't look better on the offensive side of the ball. And I say that knowing that, you know, their offense accounted for 31 points in the game. You know, that's that's not a bad offensive output. I just, I agree with the caller. Like, I think they're good enough to go to Vegas if they can shore some things up. You can't have 14 penalties for 120 or 140 yards. You know, you can't eliminate your run game because you, you have the penalties. And then you need Bo Nix not to be out there running around like he's the primary focal point of the offense running the football. That's not what Bo Nix does best. I want Bo Nix in the pocket. I want him to run a couple times a game where he just kills the defense because, you know, they're so focused on the pass game and the actual run game itself that they forget about him. And then he, you know, he runs for 14 yards in a first down or 25 yards in a touchdown or, you know, he can hurt you. But I didn't like that it looked like he was their primary focal point. That was it. Bo Nix running the football. That's not where you want to live. And I think that becomes a really dangerous position because if he gets hurt, you know, your season's not going where it should go. And it could go to Vegas. But right now, if they played Oregon State today, Stephen, Oregon plays Oregon State today. Who wins the game? Oregon State. They they look like a well-oiled machine offensively and defensively. They look great as well. Like you know, for all the questions we have about the Ducks, I don't have a lot of questions about the Beavers right now, and maybe the opponents. Yeah. But the Beavers look really good on both sides of the football. All right, I agree with you. They play USC today. Who wins? USC. I agree. They play Washington today. Who wins? Washington. I lean that way. It's why I left the game going, they have to be better. I wrote it. I'm nitpicking them. Some Duck fans got mad at me. But I'm like, the bar for them is Vegas. Who would you pick between them and Utah? I mean, Utah's beaten two Power 5 teams already. Depends where the game is. I I, I think Utah Utah isn't as dynamic. But they're they're really solid. And they they won't hurt themselves. You know, they didn't get good quarterback play this last weekend. But Utah finds a way. And Utah... In Oregon, we're great examples of going on the road and winning in college football. It's really difficult to do. All right, coming up, we're going to go to Boulder. Why? Because Brandon Dros, who uh, formerly was on this show, sitting in the very seat that, that Steven's sitting in, well, he's a big Colorado honk now. He was there at the stadium in Boulder. We'll check in with him. More of your phone calls as well, 503-417-7575. The teams in the state of Oregon are undefeated in college football, Oregon and Oregon State at least. Uh, and so much more ahead this season. You're just tuning in. Oregon State and Washington State won a temporary restraining order in court this morning in Colfax, Washington. And 
Whitman County Superior Court. The uh, Beavers and the Ducks uh, got a ruling from the court that stopped the rest of the Pac-12 conference from holding its board meeting on Wednesday, a meeting in which uh, some members of the conference were expected to explore uh, the possible changing of the bylaws and maybe uh, requiring the conference to pay some of the transition fees as uh, the members that are departing are going off to other conferences. I wrote all about it at johnconzano.com and what comes next. Uh, Colorado on Saturday and really in the last couple weeks has been the story in college football. Uh, you had uh, Colorado football on the field in a game that it took very personally with uh, Nebraska. Deion Sanders, Coach Prime, talking about it. Great win. Started off slow. Played like hot garbage in the first half. Uh, probably five minutes left in the first half. We started picking it up quite a bit and doing what we're capable of doing. Um, hats off to the defense and uh, how they were steadfast today. They atoned for the disappointment that we were last week defensively. We still gave up a few plays, but overall, I think we forced uh, three, was it three turnovers? Um, interception, I think two fumbles, so three turnovers, and uh, we didn't give up explosion to the end. So I'm, I'm really proud of the defense. Coach Prime talking about the defense. What was it like in Boulder inside the stadium? Well, former friend of the show, Brandon Droz, who is now living and working in the area in Colorado, who was at the game on Saturday, is joining us now. All right, set the scene, Brandon. Give us, like, the whole festivities. Did you tailgate? What What? How, what was it like? Uh, so, uh, first off, tried to get up there early enough for the big noon kickoff and had a lot of success. It was a lot less traffic than I think I'm used to driving up that way, especially on a game day and especially on a game where – you know, they're hosting Nebraska, who a lot of people would say is their biggest rival, even though CSU is just right down the road. Uh, but, yeah, big noon kickoff. The entire quad was packed. Um, didn't get a chance to do any tailgating. But, yeah, being right in the middle of the crowd, just about 10 feet from the stage and, you know, really feeling like the oldest person on the field, uh, certainly, you know, kind of added up there looking around a lot of college kids. But everybody was excited. They were amped up at 8 in the morning. It was was the scene like had you been to other Colorado games and, and I guess it's hard to compare like a one and eleven season to what's happening now, but you know once you get into the stadium, a lot of atmosphere there, a lot of excitement. Yeah, and I've been around a couple of my buddies who had graduated from CU, and every single one of them had said it was never like this when we were on campus a couple of years ago. It, it's never been this exciting. I haven't been this excited for a season ever. So, you know, you kind of get the buzz just being around everybody. And even down in the Denver area, you have a lot of Colorado alum. And, you know, the buzz has been palpable since Dion took the job. And, you know, after you beat TCU, everybody gets a little bit more, you know, expectations are higher. And you go beat the brakes off Nebraska, certainly kind of falling into those expectations. All right. Give us uh, the game. Was there kind of a feel in the stadium when Colorado wasn't playing well, that, you know, maybe week one was an outlier, or what did you make of that? Um, I think they knew that there was maybe just a little bit of uh, emotional jitters, just, you know, first home game uh, for everybody there, brand-new team. A lot of them are playing in Folsom for the first time. And uh, the first quarter, I wouldn't, you know, go as far as what Dion said and said they played like, like hot garbage, but, you know, you could tell they were out of sync. A lot of players just kind of weren't right with each other. Shadur was kind of overthrowing some guys on the sideline. But, you know, once they honed it in a little bit and really took control of the game, you saw probably what Colorado is capable of and, you know, what they can look like the next couple of weeks here.
what are they selling to to the fan base to the public you know you're in that market and you understand sales and marketing and sports like what is colorado football selling i think it's the fact that they're here now you know the, a lot of it was just that building blocks of you know the whole we coming everything like that but you know now they're here and i think everybody's starting to buy in a little bit and they're just along for the ride i mean i've never been a big cu guy uh, but, you know, being around it, it kind of just makes you want to keep a, a little bit more of an eye on it. And, you know, the interest level is certainly there for people kind of in the same boat as me who didn't go there. But they just want to be around it and kind of be along for the ride here for however long this is. Brandon Droz with us, uh, formerly team member on this show. What are you doing now? So I work in ticket operations for Cronky Sports and Entertainment. Um, so we've got the Colorado Avalanche, Denver Nuggets. Colorado Rapids and Colorado Mammoth for our four sports teams. And then we host a number of concerts at Ball Arena and Paramount Theaters. So uh, really just kind of taking over and handling a lot of the ticket problems during the day, working with the various sales teams from each team and uh, managing the box office during events. So it's nice to be in the building and be around everything. Has the, like the pro sports world taken notice of what Colorado football is doing because, hey, there's just market share and, and that's the reality? think so yeah we've had Dion out at a couple events um i mean even just not even on the sports side uh Dion juniors come to a lot of concerts and brought some of the cu players with him i believe uh so it's everybody's bought in here and you know boulder and denver are only about 30 45 minutes away but you can kind of feel it all the way down here did you have a hard time getting tickets uh, if I would have looked for tickets, yes, but I have a friend in the athletic department who got his tickets and mm. said, do you want them? I, absolutely. Because everybody else was asking me, how'd you pay for them? Because tickets in the same section were going for, I think, on the low end, $500. So it was nice to know people. <laughs> it's not what you know, it's who you know. All right, Brandon Droz, thank you, man, for checking in. I love that. A little bit of atmosphere from Boulder. Absolutely. Hope to see you soon, John. All right, buddy. Take care. There he goes. He was at the games. He had a friend. See, membership has its privileges sometimes. All right, coming up, Kenny Jacoby is going to talk all about the story that he broke. USA Today reported over the weekend Michigan State coach Mel Tucker, inappropriate, alleged comments, activities. Um, Brenda Tracy involved in this story. I want to know what he makes of it. I'll tell you what I make of it. It's messy, and Mel Tucker has been suspended without pay. It's next. You're familiar with Brenda Tracy, the work she's done, changing laws, changing minds, changing hearts. Well, Brenda Tracy's been touring the country for several years in the national spotlight as a survivor. I helped her tell her story years ago when she came forward to talk about Oregon State and a gang rape that happened to her in 1998. Prominent survivor, prominent activist, now back in the news. USA Today had the story. Brenda Tracy on the phone with Mel Tucker, the Michigan State football coach. Now Mel Tucker suspended without pay and accused of an inappropriate activity, sexual comments, masturbation, and subsequent harassment. 
Joining us now, Kenny Jacoby, USA Today. He had the story. Kenny, let's talk about this. So uh, Brenda Tracy um, comes forward, talks to you about what happened with Mel Tucker. Take us through it. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, Brenda Tracy uh, reached out to us uh, about the situation developing at Michigan State. Um, she has been going through a Title IX case at the university since December, 20, December 2022. Uh, it was then that she filed a complaint alleging that during a phone call in, in April 2022, uh, Mel Tucker uh, made sexual comments and masturbated without her consent. Um, this investigation has been going on for eight and a half months. Uh, it has been uh, occurring quietly in the background while Mel Tucker has continued to coach football games for Michigan State. And we published the story yesterday, and hours later, Michigan State suspended Mel Tucker without pay pending the resolution of the case. The This story as you see it, it you know, if Mel Tucker, you know, over eight months comes back to Brenda says, I screwed this up, um, you know, hey, I'm sorry, I was out of line. Are we here today? <laughs> you know, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, the reason that Brenda reported the situation to Michigan State is because of a subsequent phone call. The, the last time, the next and last time, Brenda and Mel Tucker spoke after the incident. During that call, uh, which happened in eight, August 2022, uh, Brenda said that Mel Tucker uh, threatened to destroy her career and her reputation if she came forward about his conduct. Uh, that really scared Brenda. Um, for the next four months, uh, she stayed quiet. Um, initially, she thought, oh my God, this person is going to destroy my career. I need to be quiet about this for the sake of my myself. Uh, eventually, uh, she came to realize that she wouldn't be the person that she claimed to be uh, when she travels the country and, and talks to others about holding people accountable for sexual misconduct if she didn't do it herself in this situation. And so that's what prompted the complaint. The story as you see it now, is it an investigation at Michigan State? It, you know, Mel Tucker firing back a little bit issuing a statement saying that you know this is uh this investigation is essentially a sham and brenda is uh ruining his reputation he's not going to stand by and let her do it like what's the story now in your mind kenny the story now is uh what is going to happen at the hearing that is scheduled for early october where both sides are going to have the opportunity to present their cases to a an independent neutral uh, hearing officer who will make the final determination as to whether Tucker violated the school's policies barring sexual harassment. Now, the inherent nature of these sorts of cases, as you know very well, is that there's often no eyewitnesses or recordings. So the decisions of, of who is at fault often comes down to whose account is more credible. In these Title IX cases, the standard used is the preponderance of evidence, meaning is it more likely than not that what is alleged actually occurred. And in this case, the investigator uh, who submitted her report uh, on the facts in July found some key inconsistencies in Mel Tucker's account that could come back to bite him later when this hearing comes around, if it ever does come around. 
uh, Mel Tucker indicated in his statement today um, that he already believes uh, the hearing is a sham and it's not clear if he will show up to it or not. Give me an idea, you know, because he's even saying this isn't a Title IX investigation. In your mind, is it a Title IX investigation or is it something else? I think it's sort of a distinction without a difference. Michigan State has a policy that covers both Title IX sexual harassment and non-Title IX sexual harassment. Title IX is a federal law that outlines that specific conduct that takes place on campus or in the context of a school program is covered under federal law and there are ramifications for that, meaning if a school violates Title IX, they can be held accountable in court. Uh, the difference is simply that uh, non-Title IX cases, um, they can still be adjudicated by a school, they can still end up in court, it just wouldn't be under that specific statute known as Title IX. So there's no difference effectively in how Michigan State would investigate and adjudicate the case, whether it's under Title IX or not. And so I don't think that's a particularly uh, relevant uh, argument in this case. Kenny Jacoby, USA Today, is our guest. We're talking about the Mel Tucker situation. I guess that's the best way I could describe it. Now he has been suspended by Michigan State uh, without pay as they investigate. Um, Michigan State has got some context here and some background. They, you know, the leaders at Michigan State failed to act when Larry Nasser was running around, disgraced USA Gymnastics uh, campus physician, was accused of sexually assaulting uh, more than 300 athletes under the guise of medical treatments. He's, he's got a you know, minimum of 100 years in prison. How does that factor or frame what's happening now? Yeah, so... You know, I think for the, the people in the MSU community, the students, the faculty, the alumni, uh, the community members in East Lansing, there is a deep distrust there uh, with MSU for the way it handles sexual misconduct cases uh, because of the betrayal that was the Larry Nasser scandal, that they had repeated opportunities to stop him from his sexual abuse, and they missed those opportunities. After that has all come out, Michigan State has made some strides and attempts uh, to improve the way it handles these types of cases, to rebuild some of that trust that it lost in students. Um, but now, for the most high-profile person at that university to be accused of the same sort of conduct has, has really rubbed people the wrong way and, and upset a lot of people. And, it's, and it also did not sit well that the school only suspended him after the news came out. I think it's a complicated situation for MSU, uh, but to an outsider, it has the stench of a cover-up, and people don't like to see that. Yeah, and I look at it, and I think to myself, gosh, we all found out about this when you wrote about it, but Michigan State has known about this for a while. Why wait until everybody else finds out about it to suspend him? It's a good question. Um, I don't think MSU has answered that question substantively, um, but what I will say is it is complicated because let's say Michigan State were to have suspended Tucker the moment they found out about Tracy's complaint. Um, they still have yet to conduct any sort of fact-finding investigation, mm. and so many questions would be raised as to why Tucker has been excluded from the team. And that would lead to all kinds of rumors and speculation, and that is not necessarily what victims going through these sorts of cases want. So it is a complicated decision, and they made the decision that they did to sort of 
uh, do the investigation quietly. And maybe that was the wrong decision, uh, but that is that is where we are. Kenny, give me an idea here because, you know, as, as I see it, Brenda Tracy is touring the country. She's speaking. Mel Tucker's program is one of the universities she's talked with. Um, she develops at least a working relationship with Mel Tucker. He's classifying it as more. Um, and then subsequently after the incident, uh, she says he cancels her future visits. Um, I just, I, I struggle with how stupid Mel Tucker looks here. He looks like an idiot. Yeah, I mean, if you were to take his word, um, considering, you know, what he says, that essentially he and Brenda Tracy had a uh, mutual romantic attraction to each other um, that led to them having consensual phone sex, you're still dealing with the fact that, you know, Tucker, he is a married man, and he had just signed a $95 million contract with the school that came fully guaranteed, even if he never won uh, another game. If the school fired him for performance-based reasons, it would owe him 100% of the money left on that contract. The caveat is that if he's fired for cause, he's not entitled to any of that money. So in his version of events, um, he essentially had an affair with somebody who was a vendor for the university, who the university, who he particularly hired to come to his team to explain and, and teach his athletes and coaches about sexual misconduct. And even if that were true, I think the argument could be made that that is embarrassing conduct to the university, that that is conduct that subjects the university to ridicule, and that in and of itself uh, could be a fireable offense. Kenny Jacoby, USA Today, is with us. All right, let's, um, let's step back, devil's advocate. You know, there's part of this. Brenda doesn't look good in this either. She's sort of having these late-night phone calls, 30 minutes, with somebody she's in a working relationship with. I mean, I, I think, you know, if I look at it objectively, I go, okay, what is going on here? But I still come back to the fact that, you know, she's got discomfort. He's not denying that he was masturbating on the phone while he's talking to her. She wasn't uh, participating in it. And afterwards, her next subsequent visit gets canceled after she objects to it and says she's not on board with it. I mean, it just it looks like classic harassment. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's important to note that there's no such thing as a, a perfect victim out there. There's no one way for a survivor to act, especially in the moment itself uh, when they're dealing with trauma. So the backstory is uh, Brenda had come to MSU for the first time at Tucker's behest in August 2021 when he invited her for the first time to speak to his team. She left that day feeling like she had found a champion in Tucker, that he was an ally in her cause to uh, reform the campus culture around sexual violence. And she said that she genuinely believed that. And, you know, further, they had, they stayed in touch after that visit. He continued inviting her to campus for additional visits. And during that time, they developed a professional bond and they sort of became friends. They would talk on the phone fairly frequently, uh, of an average of about 30 minutes every two weeks or so over the the year that they were in contact and it wasn't and it was during that time that brenda began to realize uh she said that tucker was more interested in her than in her cause and there were certain things that he did that she said suggested that 
he was only interested in her romantically. And she said that she repeatedly made clear to him that she does not date people who she works with, that she tried to set boundaries with him, and that after multiple attempts to try and do that is when he he masturbated on the phone without her consent. So that's the context in which this happened. Kenny, uh, what happens next? What's the what's the next step for Mel Tucker? Well, for Mel Tucker, um, he has got to uh, find out his fate at the end of this hearing, which is scheduled for early October, October 5th and 6th. At this hearing, um, he and his attorney and Brenda and her attorney will have the opportunity to question witnesses, to present evidence, to make their case uh, to a neutral uh, hearing officer who will decide whether Tucker is responsible for violating school policies. And on, after that, uh, depending on what the determination is, uh, MSU will have to decide what to do with him. Uh, it, it's within the realm of possibility uh, that they decide that there's insufficient evidence to determine if there's a policy violation. It's also very possible that they find him at fault in this case. But either way, they're going to have to decide whether they want the face of their prestigious football program in the aftermath of the Larry Nassar scandal to be somebody who is accused of sexually harassing one of the nation's most prominent advocates against sexual violence. Well put. Kenny, I appreciate your work on this, man. Great job on it. Good job getting the story and telling it in a way that, um, you know, is easy to understand. I think that's a hard thing to do because I, I read all of the accounts and only yours at USA Today was, you know, I, that's where I keep directing people. People are going, I'm confused after reading the ESPN story. I'm confused over after reading the AP story. Uh, how difficult was it for you to kind of lay it out with the timeline, everything that happened and uh, what's at stake? Yeah, you know, we were able to write a, a much more detailed story than every other outlet because Brenda Tracy provided us with the more than 1,200 pages of case documents. Um, this is an ongoing case, so these documents are generally not available to the public, um, but she shared them with us, and so we were to write, uh, able to write a, a much more detailed story. We, we did have to essentially boil down 1,200 pages of documents into uh, one story, which is not an easy task, and to write it in a fair way that presents the evidence on both sides. Um, but I think we accomplished that, and, and we sort of don't tell people what to think, but just lay out the evidence for and against and let people come to their own conclusion. Kenny Jacoby, USA Today. Good work. We'll get you back on as uh, the story moves along. Thank you. That sounds great. Thanks, John. All right. There he is. Interesting stuff. Um, I like what he said, that there's no such thing as a perfect victim or survivor when it comes to these cases. I know Brenda Tracy. You know Brenda Tracy. She comes from our neck of the woods. She's been on this show numerous times. We've seen the laws that she's changed. We know who she is. And it's why when a story like this surfaces, I uh, see that it's involving her and Mel Tucker. And full disclosure of this, like, you know, I had an inkling this was coming down the pipeline. I did not know it was a story that actually had an investigation attached to it, but I did know that uh, that Brenda had had some kind of troubling interaction with a major coach and was weighing her options uh, months ago, and I kind of lost track of what was happening. Comes out, it's Mel Tucker, it's Michigan State, and, you know, for her, this has got to reopen a lot of pain, 25-year-old pain, 
uh, or four four football players, two of them at Oregon State, a junior college player, a high school recruit being the other two. Um, you know, I told that story years ago, and she is like a rocket ship gone around the country with the Set the Expectation campaign and done a lot of good work, a lot of powerful work, a lot of important work. And Mel Tucker now, uh, without without pay, suspended. And I got a hard time thinking that Michigan State can bring him back in any form or fashion. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. Sam is in Portland. Sam, you listened to the interview. What would you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm just always amazed by, well, first of all, I think people don't value this, the sanctity of marriage. I mean, my God, he's married. Like, what are you doing? Like, first of all. Second of all, you know, it's just, it just dumbfounds me. You bring her in to do the work that she's known for doing, and you disrespect her and, and all the work. Uh, you know, you traumatize her over again. The, it just amazes me how stupid some people are. That was one thing. But then the other thing that didn't you didn't discuss in, in, in this interview is bringing back D'Antonio, right? He, he left under a scandal that involved sexual assault from his players. Michigan State is a, is a mess, and I don't know if it's ever going to get better or what is going to make it better. But I, the whole thing is just disgusting and sad, and, and Mel Tucker is an idiot for doing what he did to um, violate that uh, professional business relationship and to, and to violate his marriage and his wife. Um, it was a great interview, great story. It's disgusting and sad. I think he's gone. And uh, what, I'd love to know what you think, John, about bringing back D'Antonio in any capacity. Yeah, I think in those circumstances, they're probably looking for who knows the program, who's familiar with what's going on. Um, I gotta, I gotta get myself up to speed with you know what his role is as the acting coach. Um, it it doesn't feel to me like Mel Tucker can come back. He's facing a Title IX investigation. He is going scorched earth towards uh, the person who's making the accusation towards him. He's also calling out his university. Um, I'm looking at the news release that that Michigan State issued as they put um, Mark D'Antonio in, in part of, in charge of the program. Um, you know, they're just saying that he has a relationship and a connection with the university, and um, you know, it, and and granted. His any kind of, uh, you know, basically any kind of uh, relationship that he has or any kind of scandal that he was involved in, um, they're believing that, you know, he's a better option than Mel Tucker. But but the caller is right. Like in his tenure, 16 Michigan State football players were accused of sex assault, you know, outside the lines had all the story. And so it's like your your uh, your solution short term is to bring back the guy that, you know, outside the line says uh, didn't do a good job overseeing the program. Um, I, I, this is the guy? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Like, it's it's like, hey, we got a really bad situation. This is less bad. Let's bring, D, you know, Mark D'Antonio back. Um, and the athletic director there, Alan Holler, it, he better be careful because this is one of these situations that causes – full-scale house cleaning 
The thing I don't want to see happen, though, is, you know, an advocate like Brenda Tracy is invited to campus. She's touring. She's, you know, I don't want to see programs go, hey, this is a potential liability. Let's not bring survivors to come and talk to our teams because this could have been avoided if, if we never had booked her as a, uh, as a client. That's not the solution. The solution is Mel Tucker should not be on the phone doing what he did on the phone. He admits to it. Like, he's not, he's not uh, disputing that part of the uh, allegation. He's basically, though, saying, he's saying, his claim is that it was a consensual act. She says it was not. He subsequently canceled her visits after she objected to what happened. I mean, that part of it looks bad no matter what way you cut it. Anna's popping in the studio next. Leave it here. Anna's in the studio. Big story of the day. Washington State, Oregon State in court today. They got a temporary restraining order. Anna, you watched the court proceedings on Zoom. The end of the proceedings were interesting as uh, Beaver fans and Duck fans all sort of celebrated the end of the interview. Here's the Zoom call. Final 10 or 11 seconds. All right. We'll be in recess. Thank you. Thank you. Go Beavs. Go Beavs. Go Beavs. Go Cubs. Go Cubs. Go Cubs. That was the end of the Zoom call <laughs> as the once muted wanted their voices heard. I thought that was a little bit of charm at the end. Uh, yeah, that came as a surprise. I guess I was watching it with you, because I and I didn't realize that the link was publicly available. So I had no idea how many people were actually tuning in via Zoom. Uh, that wasn't what I expected at the end, but it was pretty charming. Uh, I thought it was... Um, I mean, we've all experienced in the last two or three years how annoying Zoom can be. And so it is surprising at this point for how widely used it is that people still haven't figured out how to mute their microphones and turn their cameras off for something as serious as a court hearing because there were some really random sounds and uh, images that were very distracting at the beginning of that hearing. Give me an idea. The judge himself... And for people who weren't tuned in, I thought the judge was a fascinating character in this drama. Gary Libby, he is the judge there in Whitman County Superior Court. He starts by referencing he and his wife being at the fairgrounds, serving and eating funnel cake over the weekend. Like, just a charming sort of, hey, let's remember who we are and where we are. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was an interesting contrast to... Um, just the, I don't know, I guess the, the weight of what was being discussed and in particular in contrast to, you know, like you've written about how fancy the headquarters were in San Francisco for the Pac-12 headquarters and how much the conference was paying in rent in downtown San Francisco and here you've got, you know, Judge Livey talking about, uh, like right off the bat, setting the tone that, hey, I know these are important proceedings, but by the way, I've got a doctor appointment to get to at 1230, so we're going to have to break at that point. Uh, we can continue the discussion. I want everybody to say what they need to say, but i gotta, I got to get to the doctor later in about an hour and a half from now. I, uh, <laughs> I like that part, too. And he did. He made his doctor's appointment. He like did. He got out on time. 
We forget judges are people, too. They're like me. They're like you. They have doctor's appointments. <laughs> I'm just impressed that he's actually going to the doctor's appointment. Um, Oregon State and Washington State get the restraining order. There's going to be more litigation. Comes down the pipeline. I was really impressed with the attorney for the plaintiffs. Not so much for the defendants, but there. I think that the guy for the plaintiffs was working with a lot more material. Yeah, I mean, once the attorney for Oregon State and Washington State finished his remarks, I kind of was struggling because I was like, well, what? I, I was really curious at that point. Like, what is the attorney for, uh, you know, the defendants going to say in this? What does What is left? Right. What can he say? Because notably, on the issue of notice, which is what I think... In the bylaws. In the like bylaws. notice to withdraw. No, the notice to withdraw, like, how, in any reasonable person's mind, does the defendant, in this case, say that they, you know, didn't officially give notice that they were leaving the conference? Like, we all have seen the extreme publicity the, the campaign that has been waged over the last month over what has happened, each of the schools that are leaving, posting it on social media, holding press conferences, talking about how exciting this all is. Like, there's, there's no argument there that the notice has been given by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Uh, it was strange to me when the defense attorney, his initial argument was, hey, not everybody's here. Like, that was his best argument. And you're going to lead with your best argument if you're an attorney who's arguing in one of these hearings. You're going to go with, give us your good stuff first, and then you progressively work down. And his best argument out of the gates was, hey, George Kwiatkow isn't here. He's in, you know, he's in a bad position. And, in fact, here's the attorney kind of arguing Kwiatkow's position as it pertains to uh, having mo members of his own conference now litigating against each other. was a very, thank you, and this is a, this is a very weighty matter for uh, Commissioner Klyavkov, who is doing his level best. He's in a terrible position. He's in Montana, it says. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he may be physically there, but existentially, he's in a terrible position as the commissioner of this conference, who has to answer to a chaos of voices and discord. And yet, every Saturday, and sometimes during the week, until June of next year, he's responsible in large part for the success of all of that activity and for the performance of critical, critical business relationships that exist today for which the, commission, the, for which the commissioner and the conference have to perform. I don't think Klyovkov looks good in this. You know, I love that the judge points out He's in Montana. Like, he's vacationing, basically, at his second home in Montana. Yeah, that wasn't ideal, uh, I would imagine, uh, for Klyovkov. Also, record number of ways in which his name was mispronounced throughout the proceedings. <laughs> I was like, wow. Klyovkov, Klyovkov. Klyovkov. Yeah, like, clap, 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 like, Klyovkov. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I just... I was really surprised that there wasn't a stronger presentation by the attorney for the Pac-12. I think there is a sound argument to be made on, on behalf of the conference. If you step back and you look objectively, 
they can argue rather effectively, I think, that they need to be able to operate as a conference. And I think he touched on that. Like he was using the idea that there's these thousand athletes at colleges across the Pac-12 that need the conference to operate and function and it can't operate if the members can't even meet. Uh, but I just don't think it was presented very strongly. I think I, I felt like uh, he just didn't have the argument. And when you don't have the argument, I think it's tough to make the argument. Like, And, and I think they're going to have a harder position with the bylaws because it appeared from both I mean I've read the bylaws and it appears in the bylaws that if you make an announcement before August 1st of 2024 that you're leaving the conference you're in breach of the bylaws which means you lose your board seat now it's not, it's the, it's the wording isn't even make an announcement right it's give, give notice, notice. Yes. And so and, th and that's very vague so it can be in the form of an email to the conference it can be in the form of a social media which post. which Colorado did Yes. Social media posts, they all did. Yes. News conferences, they held, and they said, you know, they said things like, we are going to uh, the, uh, we're going to the, uh, we're going to the Big Ten conference, or we're going to the Big 12 conference, whatever, whatever conference well, they that they're running it. They off to. they all were releasing logos that showed their new partnerships with the new conferences. And so, I mean, if you read the letter of the law, and, and then the other aspect of it that I really think hurts um, the defense, the defendants in this case, the conference and their argument that the board should be able to meet and operate as normal was simply how they treated USC and UCLA when they decided to leave last year. Like they went and had meetings about the future yeah. of the conference and excluded, and excluded yeah. USC and UCLA. So then you can't like decide to change the bylaws that's what they try to do because there's now <laughs> 10 members that want to leave instead of just two it's just like i i don't know i'm, I'm also, not an attorney but any yeah. reasonable person watching this can see what's happening you tell me if this is notice of withdrawal here's rob mullins the oregon athletic director this is a, this is the next step of that bold vision and it sets us up for the future in this changing landscape for sure um, and, you know, in that changing landscape, there's a lot of elements. Uh, obviously, um, the coach's contract was a big piece. This is a significant piece, and the facility that you reference is a big piece, um, as is making sure that we're providing all those support elements for our student-athlete in the modern game, um, and then also making sure that we are, are, are understanding NIL and that we are being progressive. We have one of the best facility infrastructures in all of college athletics to support those student-athletes, so of course that's an element. Uh, Autzen is a key piece for us. I mean, football generates 70% of the resources that support these 20 sports. Um, and as you know, uh, that north side uh, does need some work. The south side's phenomenal. So that has been on our radar for a long time and will continue to remain on our radar. All right, there's the AD. I mean, he's talking about going to the Big Ten. Here's the president. I spent a lot of time with the trustees where they're giving me, we're engaged in dialogue about how to move the university forward. But there's a common theme to everything that we talked about. And that theme is how do we make the University of Oregon an even better university five years, 10 years, and 15 years from now. Today, we have been granted one of those opportunities. Earlier today, the Big Ten Conference invited us to become a member of the Big Ten. The Big Ten is not only a remarkably strong athletic conference, 
It is the, one of the premier academic conferences in the country. Indeed, I would say it is the finest academic athletic conference in the country. By inviting the University of Oregon to be a member of the Big Ten, we have opportunity to accelerate our extraordinary record of innovation and success on the playing fields, as well as to enhance significantly the academic reputation of the university. I'm enormously excited about this opportunity and look forward to answering questions along with our amazingly successful athletic director, Rob Mullins, uh, to engage in this conversation. See how he walked the He line never there? said it. You see how he walked it? He never actually he said, said it. He said they've invited us and we're exploring that opportunity. Oh my gosh. But others <laughs> have gone further on social media by saying we are joining. It's going to be really interesting well, to see. Well, August 5th, uh, Oregon football yeah. put a video on Instagram. The caption is, B1G moves, period. Yeah. Big Ten yeah. moves. Yeah. And it ends with the logo, the Oregon logo, and the Big Ten. So They also but, have on, you know, <laughs> on the morning of that Friday where they left, informing the commissioner that they intended to join the Big Ten conference. You know, verbal confirmation there. I, I think there's I, I actually don't think this is gonna go to a lawsuit. Okay, but that's fascinating yeah. though, to go back and listen yeah. to how carefully he that statement that. is worded yep. now in light of what we're about to you know, all the legal mumbo jumbo that we're gonna you know, embark on now. Yeah. How about how about this guy? How about Robert Robbins, the um the president at Arizona. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, look, we we were, <laughs> I think we were all expecting Friday morning, we were showing up together to sign in blood uh, our grant of rights over to the uh, to the Pac-12 conference. And, um, you know, we were notified uh, by, I, I guess they must have split us up. I, I got called by one of the presidents and said, look, this is tough, but we, um, we came to an agreement with the Big Ten, uh, you know, 10 minutes ago, and I just want to give you a heads up before we, we get together uh, as presidents and chancellors that we'll be, we'll be taking our talents to the Big Ten. All right, so notice, did Oregon give notice to the other members? Did they give it publicly? Like, I think there's a game of semantics that will be played here. From a legal standpoint, I don't think it, you know, I just don't think it's going to end up in, in court. I think they're going to settle. Yeah. And I think today was about creating some leverage for Oregon State and Washington State. They get a they get a win on the restraining order front. The conference is not allowed to be dissolved, but there's more ball to play here. And the argument will come down to the did they give notice? Did they not give notice? What is notice? All right, leave it here. You got the PFT. Pac-12 football teams looking good on the field. I don't know if you're a Pac-12 football fan. You have to feel pretty good about the way this conference has started off. 13-0 and entering the weekend. I was watching as the morning games started to unfold. Man, it was kind of fun to see, like, what was going to happen with uh, certainly uh, Colorado in the morning and Nebraska and Utah and Baylor. I was watching those games simultaneously thinking, when is the conference going to get its first loss? Utah had fallen behind. Colorado was looking shaky for a while. Then all of a sudden, Coach Prime's team turned it on. 
beat Nebraska 36-14. Utah pulled it out, you know, dominating the fourth quarter, particularly the late parts of the fourth quarter, 20-13 to over Baylor. Then came Washington and Tulsa. Washington laid it on Tulsa 43-10. Uh, Oregon gets a W. All of a sudden I started looking like, or after Oregon's win, 38-30 over Texas Tech, and I was in Lubbock. After that game, it was uh, a 17-0 start to the season for the Pac-12 Conference. And all of a sudden, Arizona found itself in overtime against Mississippi State and lost. First loss to the Pac-12 season came in overtime as Arizona fell 31-24 to Mississippi State. And the conference, uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, the once proud conference of champions, uh, ended up with a 17 and 1 record for the season at that point UCLA beat San Diego State made it 18 and 1 Washington State knocked off Wisconsin made it 19 and 1 uh, Oregon State beat uh, UC Davis it was 20 and 1 Cal and Auburn locked up in a game that was uh, obviously uh, tight down the stretch but uh, Cal could not pull that out ultimately lost the football game but it was like you know 20 of the first 21 games of the season, Pac-12 walked off winners. Thought the Ducks looked really good, but also looked like a team that could conceivably lose a couple of games this season. I don't like that about Oregon's start. I didn't like that they looked a little bit like Mario Cristobal's Ducks at times on offense. Uh, gone was the creativity of the Kenny Dillingham era. Gone was the defensive dominance that we expected from a team that was being coached by the former D coordinator at Georgia. Uh, you know, I just felt like on both sides of the ball, Oregon was just okay, good enough to win, showed some resilience. That's part of football. Uh, improvise, adapt, overcome, all that. That's great. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I, I just feel like if you are somebody who's expecting Oregon to get to Vegas and compete for a conference championship, you need better effort, more complete effort, more dynamic team. Meanwhile, at Oregon State, I think the story on Saturday was the opening of Research Stadium or the grand reopening of Research Stadium. A lot of pride from people in Corvallis, $161 million project. I had the photo gallery with uh, a photographer on the scene, and as I got those photos, I was like, you know what, why not create an individual gallery of all those great uh, photos and uh, slap it up at johnconzano.com. If you want to see that, I tweeted it out. It's a pretty cool-looking gallery, and uh, you're uh, welcome to check that out. But, uh, you know, Oregon State still looks good. They, and, again, playing less than competition with UC Davis, a much bigger test coming for the Beavers this week in San Diego State. But I expect Oregon State and Oregon to both be 3-0, and get through the non-conference games unscathed, Meanwhile, Washington State with a big win over Wisconsin on the road. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Stephen, as we unpack sort of the weekend of games, what was the biggest win for the Pac-12 this weekend? Um, I, I do think it was the Oregon-Texas Tech game. Uh, because I, you know, the loss by Texas Tech to Wyoming did hurt that game going into it. But we all knew that it was going to be you know, in prime time in a tough spot. And Oregon, like you said, didn't look great the entire game but to pull that out I do think it keeps them alive and you even though they barely win the game I still would think and you've said this numerous times that they can still get to Vegas and I think that's where we're that was the outcome I came the conclusion I came from that game was you know what even if they don't play well they can get wins and they can get to Vegas as long as things break their way but I think that was the biggest one 
um, in my mind. I do think if if Arizona would have pulled it off at Mississippi State, I think that would have been the biggest one as well because that's a, that's a game where if Arizona wins that game, I don't know that they would be ranked, but they'd be receiving votes, and they would be even close to getting nine teams in the top 25. Baylor, Utah was interesting. Oregon, Texas Tech, interesting. Wisconsin and Washington State, interesting. For me, it's terms of the standpoint of what was the bigger win because for me, when I look at bigger wins, I want to talk contenders, and I don't think Washington State necessarily is a contender to win the conference. That was a huge win by Jake Dickert's team, and you know the fact that Washington State's been left behind, forgotten, dismissed, whatever you want to say, that Jake Dickert, with his voice cracking on the field, talking to an ESPN postgame reporter saying, hey, you know, that it, you know, that's, we belong in the Power Five was a big moment, I thought, for the conference, big moment for Washington State, certainly. But I think you're right in that Oregon, Texas Tech, and maybe Utah Baylor, or maybe even Colorado being Nebraska, you talk about the spotlight, those wins were all, I think, bigger in the 20,000-foot view of the conference. Anna, you're a peripheral sports fan. You're peri- <laughs> yeah, as we talk about if, yeah, to describe that. If we as we talk about those things, how do you kind of frame this excellent start to the season by uh, the Pac-12? Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's a shame that this is the last season that it will exist in its form given how well it's doing and the attention it's getting nationwide. I think that's super sad. But I have questions, so it's like I, it's, I don't form opinions, I just have more questions. So when you hear Jake Dickert say, we belong in a Power 5 conference, given that the win was against, it was against Wisconsin, is too much being, is he making too much of that win? Like, he's obviously caught up in the adrenaline of the moment, but um, does that win uh, this last Saturday really mean that they belong in a Power 5 conference? I mean, I just think Wisconsin's in a Power 5 conference. They were the number 19 team. Mm-hmm. It, it's, hey, we're good enough mm-hmm. to belong. We yeah. should, like, like, look, if we just, if we just said we're going to take the top 64 teams in America, mm-hmm. that's what the Power 5 is, is. It's the top 64. Yeah. We're going to take the top 64 teams, mm-hmm. and we're going to say that's the Power 5. We're not going to give them conference names. We're just going to take 64 of the best teams. Right. Oregon State and Washington State are in the top 64. Yeah. Clearly. Okay. Look at the top 25 of the rankings. They're both in the top 25, all right? They're in the top 64. Yeah. Teams that presumably might not be in the top 64 are teams like Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. Rutgers. Yeah. You know, there's you you could you can go through each conference and pick off teams that probably can't justify being a consistent top 64 team. I wouldn't say that of Stanford and Cal. They're still mm-hmm. a top 64 program in most years. And I wouldn't say that about Arizona State either because I think given their resources and market size, they're a top 64 team. But I think the the cry and shame is that you're going to get programs that that uh, you know aren't as deserving as mm-hmm. Washington State and Oregon State that will that will be quote unquote included. I see. In the, in the Power 5 conference moving forward. Are you ready for the 5 at 5? You have your five best stories? Of course. All right. I try to show up with my homework done. You're going to yeah, bring your A game <laughs> I on might the be 5 cramming. at 5. I might be cramming like I All did right. in college. But, but No, I like it I like it because it gives us a chance to kind of catch up on what's going on. Five big stories. Uh, we've covered a bunch of stuff from the weekend. And we will also have Monday Night Football coming up uh, in the 5 o'clock hour right here on 750 The Game in Portland. So those of you who want to catch the football game. All right, leave it here. Anna's going to do the 5 at 5 coming up next. you got the bald-faced truth. Leave it in. I was in Lubbock, Texas over the weekend along with the Oregon Ducks. I'd never been to Lubbock before. 
One of the booming West Texas towns. One of the big booming West Texas towns. You know the population there, Anna, makes it the 10th largest city in America? Did you know that? No. And I Lubbock? I would have lost that if you would have bet me money yeah. on that. What? It's booming. Lubbock? Texas. I ask people, why do you live here? Because it's roasting hot, dusty, and flat. There's nothing there. There's no highway, like major highway that runs across the country that passes through Lubbock, Texas. It's not like, uh, you know, old Highway 40 or Interstate 40 or, or, you know, Route 10 that goes from Florida all the way to, you know, the western part of the United States. That not None of that passes through Lubbock. Spoken like somebody who's driven it. I have driven it. <laughs> so what do they say? They told me that... I said, why did it grow so much? Because the population of, of the metro area, it's like two point something million people like in total. But the population has grown by like 50% in the last 10 years. Okay? Okay. And I was like, well, what happened? And nobody can quite tell me. I also asked people, um, they, gave me, they gave me ideas like, you know, Amazon put some hubs here. Okay. And the university, Texas Tech is one of the largest... Uh, enrollments in the country they have like 40,000 students or like Arizona State mm -hmm. so they're pumping out a lot of kids that just go and stay there and then they also told me that the oil business has boomed in West Texas in the last couple of years they 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 claimed I don't look this up they the uber driver that was in his uber claimed that they were producing more oil than some of the Arab countries <laughs> okay. and I was like which ones and he didn't know but yeah. it but it he says that he's been picking up a lot of, uh, what do they call them, Rough Riders? R rough Riders? Yeah, what, what are they, the guys that uh, run the uh, rigs, I the oil rigs? I, I don't know. Don't you know that? No, I, I don't know that term off the top of uh, my come head. Come on. Steven? I've never, <laughs> never heard of it. Definitely not, definitely not in my uh, forte. <laughs> you don't know what, what are the people called that, that, uh, that run the oil rigs? Oil, oil guys? Oil Steve. guys? No, roughnecks. Rough They're called necks. roughnecks. Oh, that's a real term. That's hard manual labor. Yeah. So that's what he called. He told me okay. the roughnecks. He said, I've been picking up a lot of roughnecks. roughnecks. Okay. Yeah, those are the guys that uh working on the drilling rigs. Yeah. He said that he didn't used to pick them up, and all of a sudden he says the last year or two he's been picking up a whole, whole bunch of roughnecks, oil rig workers. Yeah. So it could be that, but I also said to people, why here? Yeah. Whose idea was it, you know, because it's just like, you know, when you go to the beach yeah. and you walk out and you, like, you and I are going to the beach, okay? Uh -huh, and okay. we got the kids, we got yes. like a cooler, we okay. got like some towels, I can hands are full. It yes. It's kind of a pain to go from the parking lot or whatever yeah, to the spot. Yeah, just so much crap. Yes. I'm looking for, <laughs> I'm looking for an area that's relatively flat. Yes. It has enough space for us. Mm-hmm. It's close enough to the water that the kids can get in, but we're not going to be bugged by the water. Right. We can watch the kids from that space. Yes. So I'm very carefully plotting where we're going to set our stuff. <laughs> yeah. and we're kind of holding our stuff and surveying, yeah. looking up and down the beach, yes. looking at where other people are, yeah. and then we find a spot and we set up. Yeah. Okay. But there's a reason that we set up in a specific spot. Absolutely. We go, okay, this is a good spot. It's flat. It's yeah. not too far from the parking mm -hmm. lot. It's close, closer yeah. to the water. Right. Kids can build a sandcastle here. Yes. 
It's very there's yeah. a lot of strategy that there's goes a, into it. There's a reason proximity to the restroom, all that. There's a reason most people live where they live. Uh-huh. They've done that surveying. They have plotted. Yeah. They have looked around and they have said this is our spot. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know if people who live in Lubbock have made that assessment. Because they don't seem to know. Like, one guy told me that, well, his grandparents, two generations ago, uh, his, he said his grandfather was an illegal immigrant that came from Mexico. Yeah. Settled there, helped lay bricks for the road. Okay. And I said... So there's family history. Yeah, okay, there's family history, but, you know, you had a choice, too. Yeah. And he says, I don't know. I left and I came back. <laughs> Another guy was from Cameroon. Okay. Okay. He was an Uber driver. Right. And he said his wife had visited Lubbock from Cameroon, and she had friends there, and she came back to Cameroon and said, if if we move to the U.S., we got to move to Lubbock. I'm comfortable there. Yeah. And so he said, of you know, the he wanted to make his US. wife happy. Yes. And I said, he said, where are you from? I said, the Pacific Northwest, you know, Oregon. Uh-huh. And he was like, oh, so expensive. Well, he's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to yeah. the home prices probably I said, in Lubbock. also does not look like a flat parking lot with just dirt and tumbleweed like Lubbock, Texas does. Well, okay, i got to check you on something here. Right. Because 11th populous yeah. in Texas. Oh, in Texas? Not in the country? most populous. They told me it was 10th in the country. That's what happens when you go to Texas. Yeah, it's all bigger. Yeah, it's all it's bigger its own country. Texas. It's the... It's it's the eighty third most populous city in the U.S. Oh, so, well, I got I got some bad intel there. Yeah. All right. I just I had to, I had to, you know. They told me it's I the tenth biggest city in the country. Right. And well, I was like, wow. And to them, the whole country is just Texas. All you right. Know, the still whole booming. Succession from the union kind of it's thing. It's still you know? booming. That's, there's some signs of that. Right? All right. Remnants We're, of that. All right. We got to do a quick five at five. You get a oh. minute for each one. Yeah. Here we go. Let's go. The five at five. Anna, go. I'm going to talk real fast now. Chris Jones ends a lengthy contract dispute with the Chiefs. Uh, he missed all of training camp and even <laughs> the uh, first game of the regular season. But now he's back with the Chiefs. In, in fact, the contract was signed in time for him to join their Super Bowl celebration banner unveiling last night. No, he, he missed last. He missed ah, Thursday night ah, football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He missed Thursday night football. Right. That probably helped his negotiation, right. how bad they were in the <laughs> opener. Number two. Oh, that's it? Okay, next, next. That Spanish soccer president, he finally resigned. <laughs> his mother can eat now, but he's not going out quietly. He's still saying there's truth that needs to be told. Things will prevail in his favor. Nobody cares. Go away. Well, we need, like, we, need finally the, we need the story for the five of five. If it goes away, I mean, that's one of Anna's <laughs> stories every single day. I mean, what are we going to do? I know. I just find it interesting that Chris Jones ends his holdout on the same day that Mama, what's his name? Yeah, Rubiales. Mama Rubiales finally got to eat a Snicker bar. <laughs> same day. What are the odds? Oh Number three story, go. DraftKings. I don't. I can't imagine that they didn't think this one through, but they actually released a never forget 9/11 parlay on New York teams Ooh. today. It actually Ooh. started last night. The parlay I don't like included this. the Mets, the Yankees, and the Jets to win on Monday, 22 years after the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center. No. Just Bad really, form. really bungled. Whose this idea form. was this? It was a terrible fire idea. Fire that person. Or just say, no more ideas from you. Okay, I don't know if it's a fireable offense, but okay. it's a bad idea. You should not be in charge of 
the parlays. It's bad PR, poor form, tone it's deaf. It's terrible. Bad, bad, bad. All right, number four. Uh, I think this is worth mentioning because we spoke about it before. Michael Irvin settles his lawsuit with Marriott, and he's back on air. Everybody notice he was back on air on the mm-hmm. NFL Network. Uh, he has settled his $100 million defamation lawsuit. How much should he get? Against Marriott. The terms of the settlement not disclosed. Some of you may remember that there was a Marriott employee that claimed that <laughs> he sexually harassed her. He fought back and filed suit against Marriott claiming defamation um, so not only was there a settlement but apparently his back in the job I, I find it interesting there must have been an NDA uh, on all sides because nobody's talking about it including Irvin who loves to talk yeah but he's been reinstated yeah but he's not talking about it he's not going on air going I've been justified I've yeah. you know he's everybody's just being quiet and going back to work okay Lawsuit's gone away. Can we all have the time back that we spent watching that stupid video, trying to determine lip reading, what was happening, whose actions? Uh, Marriott, by the way, says they uh, stand by their people. Huh. And uh, Irvin is, you know, I, I don't know. So that was a lose-lose? What? It, lose we're, I don't we know. lost. The public we lost, lost You're on right. that. We lost. We all lost, like, Our five team. minutes of time. Number five. Uh, LeBron wants to play in the 2024 Olympics. And he's already recruiting other people for Team USA. Do we uh, want LeBron on that team in another want, year? He wants Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Anthony Davis, Jason Tatum, and Draymond Green. Is LeBron one of the best twelve players in a, in the NBA right now, Stephen? Um, I would say I would say top twelve American players. If you go international, that's Kay. a different question. Different question. I'd say yeah. I'd say he's right on the right on the edge there. I think this is like his final thing. Like he gets to be Captain America in this version of the story, and and save our and save our country from, uh, you know, embarrassment in basketball. Hmm. So good for LeBron. Go good for America. go America. But uh, <laughs> all right, we got Monday Night Football coming up. We got great shows all week. We'll uh, have Dan Lanning and Jonathan Smith on the program. We'll give you the latest and greatest. Grab a podcast of the show if you like to listen to podcasts. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.